you don't really have a BATNA in terms of, an, of a real other opportunity. You just got to negotiate based on what you think the station will appreciate is that person's intrinsic value. That can be a challenge. In other cases, it's not that challenging. You have an open market for an individual like a play-by-play guy or an analyst in sports where you're working on a national level. And, you know, you just saw it recently. He's not a client of ours, but Tony Romo, you had a tremendous bidding war. You had ESPN, you know, willing to offer him upwards of four or five times what he was making. We do represent Peyton Manning, and he was offered similar. So when there's a fertile market and there's an opportunity, it really drives, you know, how you advise the client, depending on, you know, what the nature of the opportunity is and what your alternatives are, frankly. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. The president and founding partner of If Management, Steve Hurst, believes that anything is possible. Steve was once a portly fellow who could not swim. Undaunted by the lack of physical gifts, he set about to compete in the treacherous Gulf Coast Triathlon in Panama City, Florida. Shedding his extra girth while learning to swim, he met six-foot waves, the 90-degree temperatures, and completed the prestigious Ironman qualifier all were raising thousands of dollars for the Leukemia Society and being voted most inspirational member of the team in training. That underdog earn everything spirit has propelled Steve his whole life and solidified his belief in the power of personal change. He's leveraged his unique communication gifts and interpersonal skills to build a little company into an industry powerhouse, if management, now part of Montag Group. With multiple divisions, the company and Steve all serve the same purpose, coaching and motivating others to become the best version of themselves and never settling for just good enough. While it has evolved to impact the lives of CEOs, lawyers, entrepreneurs, and young professionals, Steve's ultimate goal remains using his motivational message and distinct skill to aid others in their journey to greater heights. Steve's book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer, will be published June 16th. Actually, this episode should air, I think, right around there, maybe the 17th. So I think it will just be published on Hopper Business. Steve, welcome to the TealQuest podcast. Thank you for that kind introduction and happy to be here, Corey. Well, folks, listen, I'm, uh, I'm excited to have, uh, have Steve on, uh, on the show. Uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, have met him about 25 years ago uh, when he was first, first starting his agency. And I've seen what he's built over the last 25 years and you know, the kind of deals that he's done and, uh, and, and the kind of impact he's had. I'm so uh, glad to have you listeners uh, meet, uh, uh, wow, 25 years. That's kind of crazy, Steve. It really is. Wow. Um, so I want to take you back. Before we get to all the great stuff you're doing now in the deals, when you were a little kid growing up, 8, 10, 12 years old, what did you want to be? Because uh, my guess is running an agency might not have been it, but you tell me. I think when I was a little, little kid, I probably 
you know, like a lot of little kids who weren't the greatest of athletes but loved sports, probably wanted to be a sportscaster, yeah. if I could think back that far. Uh, and then I would say when I was 16, 17, when I became involved in newspaper writing for my school newspaper in high school, ended up becoming a sports editor. Then I really thought I wanted to be a sportscaster or not really a sportscaster, a sports writer. So I think th those were kind of the love sportscasting, sports writing, just being involved in the media in some way. And then went off to Michigan, wrote for the Michigan Daily. So that kind of continued down that path until things changed. Love it. And um, how have you defined this? Uh, do you remember uh, an early deal, even if it was, you know, like uh, as a kid? What's your earliest memory of doing some sort of deal? I mean, I was very young. I think I was 12 or 13 when I got my first job as a newspaper delivery boy for Newsday on Long Island. And, you know, just remembering that they had offered a, um, a promotion that the person that could sign up the most new customers would get a pair of roller skates or a hockey stick or both. I remember just going door to door, getting people to sign up for Newsday. So I'm not, that wasn't so much of a deal as much of it was sales, but it really was trying to make a deal with these new customers about what they, what it was in that for them to sign up for Newsday. Sure. And a lot of it turned out, you know, these were neighbors of mine and knew my parents and knew my siblings. So you just really learned early on the value of relationships in making deals with people. Love it. So give people a, a few minutes on, on what if, you know, does and what you do now, who you serve, who your clients are. Sure. So as you know, having started the company in your office, we are started off as a sports media management firm representing sportscasters, retired athletes, coaches, doing deals, people that would want to go on to leave the playing field and go to ESPN or things like that, or just grow up and want to be a um, host of a show, not necessarily having played sports on any professional level or any level. And so after doing that for, I guess it was about the first six months, realized that if you were going to call a local TV station in Columbus, Ohio, and say, hey, I have this great new client for you who could be your sportscaster, they would say, well, I don't need a sportscaster, but I need a weatherman, or I need a news anchor, I need a news reporter or a business reporter. So quickly realized I was too, too much of in a niche that wasn't serving the needs of the customer, so to speak. And so I shifted the business from not just sportscasters into also newscasters and other news specialists. And that's what we do now. We have now that we merge with the Montag Group, we have about 250 clients, all uh, walks of life from clients like Clarissa Ward, who's the chief international correspondent at CNN, to Dr. John Torres, who is the chief medical correspondent for NBC News, to people and you know, sportscasters that you all know about, like Bob Costas and Dick Vitale and Scott Van Pelt and you know, Dan Schulman on ESPN and others. So, and the basic job is you're a career manager. You're, you're helping these guys put together a better resume reel so they're going to be more marketable for the people that are interested in buying them. When I say buying them, you know, hiring them. You're trying to create leverage for them at all times in terms of whenever their contract is coming up or when you're doing a new deal for them at a new entity, you're trying to figure out how you can maximize their financial you know, careers in terms of ancillary opportunities, whether that be speaking engagements, endorsements, social media opportunities, uh, books, things like that. And um, that's kind of the job. And it's a really, obviously, very relationship intense job because, you know, some of these clients that I represent and we represent, I've had for in the entirety of the 24 plus years I've known you. And even some two or three years before that, when I didn't even have my own agency, but worked for others. So you're talking about relationships that can go 
three decades. And my partner, Sandy Montag, you know, he's a couple years older than me and he has clients like John Madden was his first client going back 35 years. So still represents him. You can see the depth and level of these relationships. Wow. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to join our DealQuest Dealmakers community and our upcoming Zoom event, Conversation, Connection, and Cocktails. We're doing this every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can sign up at coreycupfer.com slash CCC event. That's coreycupfer.com slash CCC event. You'll have a chance to engage with other business owners, leaders, and executives to hear more from them about their greatest challenges and most effective strategies for growth in these challenging times. Now back to the show. So let's talk, you know, so there's a lot in, in what you said, and let's talk a little bit about, you know, you, you talk about how you negotiate and prepare, you know, these guys for their next opportunity or the next contract. Um, so, you know, what are the things that go into uh, preparing, you know, basically to negotiate a deal for these guys with the networks or, you know, TV stations or whatever it is? Uh, talk to us a lot about some of the elements of, of those kind of deals and, and how you prep people for them and, you know, how you position them. Well, it's a very competitive business, as you know. And it can be a very limited market. There's a lot of challenges to negotiating in this particular field that may or may not be endemic to your field. So, for example, you have a, a weatherman who is uh, working in, you know, let's say Miami, and he's married with two kids and he's got kids in school. And, you know, you're trying to get leverage for him at the end of a deal. Sometimes you can be limited to just the other two stations or three stations in the Miami market. Some states, although a lot have been outlawed now, have non-compete clauses that a guy from going across the street to a competitor for sometimes as much as a year. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a client that can telegraph or you know, indicates to management he doesn't want to leave the city he's in, it's very challenging because you know the whole idea of BATNA, which I'm sure you talk about on your program in other contexts, you don't really have a BATNA in terms of, an, of a real other opportunity. You just got to negotiate based on what you think the station will appreciate is that person's intrinsic value. That can be a challenge. In other cases, it's not that challenging. You have an open market for an individual like a play-by-play guy or an analyst in sports where you're working on a national level. And you you just saw it recently. He's not a client of ours, but Tony Romo, you had a tremendous bidding war. You had ESPN willing to offer him upwards of four or five times what he was making. We do represent Peyton Manning and he was offered similar. So when there's a fertile market and there's an opportunity, it really drives, you know, how you advise the client, what, depending on, you know, what the nature of the opportunity is and what your alternatives are, frankly. Yeah, no, that, that, that totally makes sense. And it's, you know, I mean, you're talking about some classic, you know, uh, things like Batner, right? Best alternative to the negotiated agreement. You're talking about, you know, fundamental supply and demand and leverage, uh, you know, concepts, right? Those all play into uh, these type of negotiations as they do many others. Exactly. So that's great. Did so, I answer so, your question? I'm sorry if I didn't. No, you definitely did. You definitely did. So what are the other aspects to, you know, talk to us about, um, not everybody knows sort of, you know, how these deals uh, work. And I always like to get uh, on the inside of deals in some industries where people might be less familiar. You know, so what are some of the, I mean, obviously, you know, what's easy is, uh, you know, compensation, right? But I'm sure there are other aspects of deals for people who are on newscasters and sportscasters that are, uh, you know, coming to play. Uh, What are some of the aspects, uh, other elements of those kind of deals? Yeah, I mean, it really depends on the situation, but depending on where the individual is in his or her career, one very important component is freedom of movement. 
you sign a contract and you're working your way up into the marketplace and you, you know, let's say you're in, um, you know, your first job in Paducah, Kentucky, and then you get a job, you get a chance to go to Baltimore and, and that's a, a real step up for you, right? You're going from like the hundred market to the 20th market, but you kind of really know that you don't want to live in Baltimore and you know, there's going to be another step for you beyond that. You're, you think you're a rising star. You think you have a client that's a rising star. And yet the Baltimore station says, well, we only want you if you're going to sign for a full three-year contract. And so you may want to negotiate a buyout for the client in the third year or an out that says if a network comes to you, you can leave the deal in the third year or you have to pay a $5,000 break fee, you know, whatever it might be. So that's important. Um, you know, other things that might be important depending on the situation is the role that you're going to be playing at the station or the network. If you're being hired to be the host of a show and that show goes away, you may not want to still be there. If you get demoted, you may not want to be there. You may want to have the opportunity to get out, you know? So these are the things that you really want to anticipate if you can all the eventual possible good things that could happen to you in your career that you may want to have some kind of flexibility in the deal and also the bad things that could happen and how you might not want to be saddled with that. And it really depends on the situation and the client, but a lot of these externalities will apply depending on what happens. There's obviously other things like, for example, you want to try to indemnify your client if something happens. I'll give you an example that happened to me in my career. We have a client, I mentioned him earlier, named Dan Schulman, who's a well-known broadcaster on ESPN. He, at the time, he was the voice of Sunday Night Baseball on ESPN, which he, a job he had for many years. And one uh, show, one particular game on ESPN, there was a, a guy in the stands who was eating a lot of food and he fell asleep during the program and they showed him on camera. And I guess it was some blog made fun of the guy and he was offended. And my guy, Dan Schulman, didn't say anything about the guy at all, but he was sued along with ESPN and Major League Baseball and the New York Yankees. Uh, the guy sued everybody for uh, slander. And so we had to defend that. And that's very expensive, as you probably know. You know, lawyers are expensive. And luckily, we had an indemnification clause in Dan's contract that ESPN did a tremendous job hiring the top First Amendment lawyer, and they got the case dismissed, but it took a long time to do it. And it was a tremendous legal bill, and we were very appreciative of them indemnifying him. And so those are the kinds of things you want to think about when you're negotiating a contract. That's great. Give people you know, some good insight there. Let's jump over for a second, and we'll come back, and I'll ask you some more questions about your deals. But let's talk about this book, Don't Take Yes for an Answer. Tell us a little bit about why you, know, why you published uh, the, the book, and what it's about, and what kind of value people will get from reading it. Sure. Well, what I've really been interested in over the last 25 years as an agent, in addition to the deal making and the relationships, is just this observation that I had about people's success. I mean, ultimately, somebody comes to me to represent them because they want to go further in their life. They say, look, you're going to be, and it's not accurate, but this is the mindset a lot, is that if they get an agent, their life is going to be all better now. They're going to find all the success that they wanted in life. Everything's going to happen for them. And I tell them right off the bat, um, not a genie. I'm going to be helping you learn about the industry and coach you and give you all access to every relationship that I have. And I'm going to be a good salesman for you. And I'm going to be your advocate and all that. But I can't magically make people like you and make people want to hire you. That's still going to come down to when they look at your on-air material and your work. And when they meet you, 
they're going to be the judge of whether they're going to hire you or not. And they're also going to look into your reputation. I can tell them you're the greatest guy ever, but if they find out through the grapevine that you're not the greatest guy ever, it makes me look bad and they're not going to listen to me anyway. So that was kind of the backdrop for why I wanted to write the book. Just this observation almost felt like, Corey, I had a test tube of a 25-year experience of (laughs) why one person rises in life and the other person doesn't. And you would think that, okay, well, obviously I know why one person rises and another one doesn't. One person could be smarter than another person. They could be better educated. They could be a better, harder worker. They could be punctual and the other guy might not be. There are all these variables that could contribute to those factors, right? And be the determinant. But what I found, which was fascinating, is that that really wasn't the factor. I mean, at least in the cases that I saw, I was dealing with a talent pool of people that were smart, that were well-educated, that were showing up on time, that were doing, you know, largely all the right things that you would say to do if you're advising somebody. But even with all that, there was still this wide gulf between some people and others, right? And so what I have learned, and this is kind of the wisdom I'm sharing in the book, hopefully, is that there are just two factors that determine great success from what I would call mediocrity or middling. And again, middling for you, not necessarily middling for life, but if you're capable of being a 10 in life and you're stuck at a seven, that's middling, right? I don't care where you are. So the two factors were one, the first group of people really wanted to look within themselves to understand what were the internal factors that were holding them back. A lot of people would say, oh, I didn't get that job. I didn't get that promotion. My life's not going the way it would because this one was a jerk and this one didn't trust me and this one didn't do that and that guy hired his boss's girlfriend's brother and that's why I didn't get that job. And there's always an external reason. And it's true. There are external reasons. You can't control those. The second guy would say, all that being said, what could I have done differently? Where could I have improved? How could I have been better? So that was a real interesting observation. And then secondly, again, going back to the idea that all these people are pretty good. You know, they're all, I, what I say in the book is you kind of try to take two relatively identical apples. So what was different about the second apple other than he or she was looking inside to get better? They were looking at their communication skills. And I talk about this in the book. It's a difference between public speaking and private speaking. The term that I talk about is that most of our success in life, even broadcasters, by the way, is not just about how well you can speak in front of a group of a thousand people or 10,000 people. It's how well can you speak in front of a group of one or two? And most of our communication is private speaking. So the second group of people, the success group were ones that were really good at private speaking. They knew how to make people like them. They knew how to make people trust them. They knew how to win the room. They knew how to energize people and get people to go along with their ideas. And they were the magnets that everybody wanted to follow. And they took, forms in different shapes and sizes, different voices, different energy levels, different personas, but they had what I call in the book, awe. And that's really what the book is trying to teach people is to have A-W-E. It's an acronym for A, authority. Have a good voice. Have good body language. Have good presence. Don't speak with filler words. Be the person in the room that people respect as competent. It's not just enough to be substantively good at what you do. If you can't communicate that substance, then you don't have authority in the way that people are going to look at you. 
The second piece was this warmth piece. It was this idea to make people trust you, to make people feel trusted, to make people feel connected to you. If you're in a relationship with someone on any level and they don't feel a sense of kinship with you, of trust, then they're not going to want to be with you or follow you in the way that you otherwise could get them to. And the last piece is this energy piece. It's not just about communicating with your own energy, which is very important. It's about how do you energize others in the room? And notice that this works. So about four years ago, sorry if I'm just talking too long here. I'm just giving you the entire- No, no, please, uh, please. I, 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 I want to hear it. It's great, great stuff. So four years ago, I realized, or at least this was my thesis, that what the coaching I've given and the observations I've made about people who are on air and have succeeded, why couldn't you reverse engineer that and teach this to people who are lawyers and dentists and doctors mm. in a really simple, easy to digest way so that the only thing you had to know about in terms of your interpersonal communication skills was this one three-letter acronym, AWE. That was it. So that's what I did. I started, you know, created this consulting business and started working for a bank and for a law firm and a medical company. And the results were really rewarding, frankly. I saw a lot of positive change. And that's, in one of these meetings, um, I was speaking, ironically, at International Women's Day at Bank Liumi, and they said, a woman got up and said, hey, I love this message. Do you have a book I can buy? And I said, no, I don't. She said, well, that's a shame. You should write a book. <laughs> and, and that's how I wrote a book. Uh, I love it. I love it. So let's talk a little bit about that because getting a book deal, uh, you know, and obviously uh, I'm not asking you to disclose anything confidential, uh, you know, advanced amounts or anything like that, but having a business published book myself and having my wife just uh, released a a major publisher book, I've learned that world. So how did it come about for you to get your book deal? Did you, you know, go find a book agent, which is what a lot of people have to do? Did your relationships bring you directly to a publisher, which is rare, but that's what happened to my wife? Like, you know, how did that book deal come about? Well, yeah, what happened was is, so I I started doing this speaking and I had, you know, 25 years of notes on it and put a PowerPoint together. So I had basic understanding of what I wanted to say. Yeah. And literally that night when this woman at the bank had asked me when I read a book, I came home, told my wife and she said, well, go write a book, you know, as if it was so easy. (laughs) And I said, well, it's not that easy. She said, yes, it is. You've been talking about this for our entire marriage. Just go write it already. And I said, okay. She goes, no, right now. So I went into the kitchen and we have a kitchen table in our apartment and I took out my iPad and I started writing and I basically, you know, expanded upon the PowerPoint and, you know, had this idea. And the next day, and I've said this to a few other people, it's just bizarre. Life never works out like this. It was just so fortuitous and lucky that the next day I was taking one of my kids to school or both of them and ran to a mom at the drop-off and she said, oh, uh, how you been? And I told her about this idea about writing this book and she's a partner at the, the consulting firm McKinsey. And she said, oh, you have this friend who's a, who's a literary agent. You should go talk to her. This woman, Ifat Rice-Kendall at, at the Foundry Agency. And I knew Ifat and so I went and met with her a couple days later and told her, I showed her the four chapters I had written and the outline and, and the table of contents. And she said, I love this. I think this is great. I think you're a combination of Tony Robbins meets Malcolm Gladwell. And I thought, <laughs> all right, I, I'm being sold here a little bit, but great. If, if that's one tenth of 1% true, I'll take it. Right. So I, I signed on with her agency and she said, you know, look, I think this is great, but you're not a professional writer. So she paired me with a ghost writer and we ended up doing a proposal together. And 
it was crazy, Corey. We had a bidding war for the book. There were four uh, major publishers interested in buying it, and HarperCollins made you know the most attractive, uh, I think, you know, financial offer. But also, they were really committed to the book, and I have to say, they've done a fantastic job. Been working with an editor named Hollis Imbach, who runs their business unit, and she's been just incredible. And you know, it hasn't been easy. I, I made every mistake possible for a first-time author, and wrote a first manuscript draft that they didn't like and they were right not to like it, but I didn't know enough to know why it wasn't good and I had to rewrite the whole thing. So it delayed the book about a year, but I think that, you know, they've made it a better book hopefully. And, you know, really the hope is that readers feel that way too. And they get something out of it. That's the only thing that matters. That's great. And, and folks, uh, you know, just so uh, you, you know, listeners, if you don't know the area well, I mean, the same thing happened to my wife in that there was a bidding war for her book and, uh, and she's a first time author. And you might think, oh, uh, well, two people uh, mentioned on the same podcast would that happen? Like that almost never happens these days. Okay. I mean, when you're, you know, a first time author, there's, uh, you know, mo- most people are getting, you know, practically no advances. Uh, it's not an easy uh, to get a deal with a with a major publisher and usually uh, you got to prove yourself first. But I think, Steve, would you agree? I, I think one of the reasons why my wife had the same experience is that she didn't, you know, she was a first time author, but she didn't come out of nowhere. She also had 25, you know, uh, years in. She also had a reputation. She also, you know, was a speaker. She also, you know, she actually uh, coached some people who were successful authors. In other words, you know, the track record is what made, you know, like you said, I mean, you weren't a professional author. Your first draft was terrible, right? You know, but you still got a deal. And I think that was basically based upon your reputation, track record and whatever. And they, and they knew they can get you there. Yeah, I think it was a combination of things. I think it was, you're right. It was that. I, I also And a great idea, right? A good concept for the book. Yeah, I think it was, a, I think it's, I, look, I think it's a great idea. So I, I'm selfishly or, you know, whatever, you know, kind of drinking my own Kool-Aid here, so to speak. Yeah. But I think they liked the fact that there were a couple things that I think really helped in my factor. One is that, look, we have some some sexy clients, so right. to speak, right. and relationships that I think a lot of people will hopefully, and, and already have, been very, very willing and happy to promote the book and get out there and right. talk right. about it and, and, and put it out there on social media. So that's great. That gets word out there. The other thing is that they knew, Corey, you know me a long time. I'm crazy. And when I get uh, like committed to something, there's right. nothing is going to stop me. I mean, I, as you talked about earlier, I learned how to swim at the age of 32 to swim an Ironman qualifying triathlon. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's stupid. But this is how I am. I, I get interested in something and I became, I become extremely obsessive about it until, and there's going to be no stopping me. My wife thinks I'm out of my mind. I'm 24 seven thinking about this, reading about, talking about. So I think they kind of got that sense that they were getting in bed with a lunatic in hopefully a good way. Right. No, that totally makes sense. I mean, that, that commitment. And then, yeah, definitely. I mean, when you show that you can, you can basically help, you know, sell the book through, you know, relationships, it's going to get out there. That makes a big difference. No question. All right. So after many years, you know, running your own agency and building it up from, again, I saw it, you know, from its uh, early stages and, you know, from nothing, at some point you decided to merge, right? Um, you know, with Montag. Talk to us a little bit about what, uh, you know, what on the, how that decision come about because obviously, uh, you know, running your own show to going into, a, uh, you know, a, a merger, which then becomes a business partnership, you know, raises a lot of uh, positives, but also a lot of potential concerns usually, right? Yeah, you know, you're not, now you're not uh, the only decision maker and that kind of stuff. So, you know, so what went into that decision and, uh, and talk to us a little bit about, you know, uh, whatever on that deal you want to share? Yeah, sure. Um, I had, like, you know, established, I've had this business if for 
you know, over two decades. And over the years, a lot of people had come and thought that I and we would make a good fit in a bigger agency. And so a lot of the agencies came and tried to buy the company. And I just never really was prepared to work for anybody at any point in my life. I just am not really cut out for that. And I think it would have been a bad deal for the people who would buy us, you know, frankly. And I just, money was never that important to me. I've done fine. I'm not the richest guy in the world by a long shot. I'm not the poorest. And, you know, we have a nice life. And it just wasn't that important. And so I always said no. And over the years, one of the people that had been interested in, in acquiring us was IMG, the big agency. Sure. And the guy who ran it, the media department, is a guy named Sandy Montag. And he was always a competitor of mine, but he was always like the one guy in the business, not just the one guy, but among other guys. But first of all, he was the biggest guy in the space by far. He had all the big clients and he was always a mensch. He was a, just a decent guy. You know, he never in a business where people try to stab you in the back for a nickel and steal your clients and tell them lies about why you're so bad. He really didn't, not only didn't he ever do that, he, he kind of went away went to the other extreme. He really would tell your clients to stay with you, even if they were unhappy or they were having some frustrations. Steve and the IF team, they're good people. And I just, you know, I just so appreciated that and really respected him for doing that. And so that was kind of the backdrop of a long, you know, business friendship that we had. Not close, but we were friends. We had, you know, lunches and stuff over the years. And I knew a lot of people on his team. And so when he approached me, what happened was is he decided to leave IMG when they got bought out by WME, mm -hmm. I guess it was 2016, he left and he was able to take all of his clients with him. And he came to me and he said, look, you know, I can go start my own business. And he already kind of had started his own business. And I could do this on my own just fine. But I want to have a partner. And, you know, you're the guy I'd like to do it with. And, you know, frankly, I was flattered. You know, he had John Madden, Costas, mm -hmm. Vital, Van Pelt, Jim Nance, James Brown, you, you name it, every major guy in the business. And our business wasn't at that level. And so I thought, sounds great. And I said, look, I'm not looking to be bought. And he goes, fine. And we shook hands. And that was literally the deal. We shook hands. And, you know, my wife said to me, this is a great relationship for you. And it has been. My friends laugh at me. You know, I'm going to be 54 almost at the time this podcast comes out. And we've been together now, Sandy and I, four years. And we have a third partner, Maury Gosfriend, who I've also known for almost 30 years. And we haven't had one argument in four years. And my friends think that's impossible. So I kind of use that against my wife. Whenever we have an argument, I said, look, I don't fight with Sandy or Maury. How come we're fighting? It must be your fault. Um, I don't know, Corey, sometimes things just happen at the right time in your life. Mm -hmm. Maybe, like I said, being you know, around 50 when it happened, maybe just looking for the next challenge. And, you know, I went from owning a company with eight employees. Now I'm the president of a company that has 21 employees and that brings its own challenges. And, Look, it's not easy all the time going from being the man, the big fish in the small pond to being, you know, the second or third biggest fish, depending on the situation in a bigger pond. But I don't really care. Honestly, I don't care. I've really, the positives so far outweigh any negatives or ego blows that it's been really a perfect situation. Oh, that's great. You know, it's, it's great when those things work out, as we know, you know, not, not every business partnership does. And, you know, and when they w work out and obviously when it's somebody you've known for a long time and respected and it's such a great reputation in the industry, uh, it's a great thing. Yeah, well, it really is. And, and, and look, he and both of them and, and all the other people at the company have been very supportive of this book. And I've been very appreciative of that, too. 
That's great. So before I ask you my last question, you know, if people want to find out more about you, about uh, the agency, about the book, what's the best place for them to go? So you can find out everything you need to know about the book and about me at www.stevenherz.com. Also on Twitter at Stephen Herz or Instagram, SteveHerz66. So that's about us. We have a website for the Montag Group, the Montag Group. You can look up, uh, if you Google my name or you Google Sandy Montag's name, you can find anything you want about us. You can, that'll lead you to that. And um, that's about it. You know, if people want to hook up with me on LinkedIn, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook. I'm kind of everywhere now, you know, with these, obviously, as you know, because you do it and you've done it. I went from being kind of a guy who was under the radar to a guy who's trying to get above the radar, you know, and yeah. it's not easy yeah. getting above the radar when you've been under the radar for a long time. Well, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting point. But yeah, I think you're doing a great job of it. And knowing you, like you said, you are doggedly persistent when you take something on. So I'm sure it's going to be super successful. My, my final question is, you know, I, I'm interested in this uh, conversation, you know, be, being an entrepreneur, so as long as you have, one of the things I always say is that too many people only focus on trying to grow their business organically. They try to sell more, market more, and they don't do any kind of deals, right? And you've done, you know, everything from deals for your clients to book deals to, you know, this merger. You know, so how have deals helped you progress and where you want to go? And I'm always interested in this conversation of freedom, right? Freedom is one of my highest ideals. And I sort of have this uh, theory that, hey, deals can help you get to a place, you know, where you get freed up as an entrepreneur and, and able to build the life you want. Uh, just what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's 100% true. Look, I, I think that one of the biggest mistakes people make as entrepreneurs is trying to do everything. And you can't do everything. I mean, you can, but you don't have a life, right? And, you know, like, you know this. Um, when I started IF Management in 1996, I had the law firm of Kupfer, Rosen, and Hers representing me. You yeah. know, you guys aren't still in that same incarnation, but that same law firm still represents me today, 24 plus years later. And whether it was you early on or Larry Rosen or Arnie, my brother, you guys have been just fantastic. I mean, I cannot possibly imagine anyone has had a better experience with lawyers than I have over 24 years. And I haven't, and I am a lawyer, but I haven't done one thing really on the legal side in all these years because it's given me that freedom to go and run and grow my business. A lot of people want to do both. I don't think you can do both. On the accounting side, we've had a CFO named Ricky Spike for the entirety of the company. He's been incredible. And I haven't had to do anything on the financial side. You know, we've had the same people doing our benefits planning. I think if you get a really good team around you that can do all these ancillary back office things and you really trust those people, it frees you up. And the same thing goes with building out a staff. When I wanted to build out a news division, almost 21 years ago, I brought in a woman from another agency named Carol Perry. She's been basically right, my right hand for all these 21 years. We're as close as, I would say, siblings at this point. Maybe she would deny that, but I think she, you know, I'm joking. We're extremely close. And on the sports side, you know, I brought in Gideon Cohn almost 20, 20, 21 years ago. And, you know, he's been like a brother as well. And so this team has been in place for so many years. And I think if you can find good people, do fair deals with them and trust them and give them a lot of autonomy and a lot of freedom and a lot of, um, you know, confidence that you believe in them. And look, we have a lot of other great people at the company but I'm just trying to give you the, the underpinnings of trying to answer your question that only through, I think, you know, delegation and really trusting in others around you can you have the freedom of time, frankly, and the freedom of mind space and resource 
to A, build your business and use your tools and skills to the best possible use and also do other things. Like I couldn't write a book or be on this podcast or do any of the other things that I'm doing in my life or spend time with my family if I had to personally be responsible for 250 clients. You couldn't do it. You'd be crazy. And, but yet I know a lot of entrepreneurs who do that and I think they do it to their very big detriment. That's a great note to end on, uh, Steve. Uh, listen, I, I so appreciate you uh, being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Corey. It's great to reconnect with you. Good luck with everything you're doing. Um, I just want to conclude by saying I'm very proud of you too. I want to tell your viewers, you can cut this off if you want, but you gave me some of the greatest advice I ever got when I was young in my career about decision-making and I will always, always feel very indebted to you and very appreciative of your counsel. Thank you. That's nice of you to say, Steve. Uh, so uh, thanks again. Great interview. Really appreciate having you on. Thanks, Corey. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. You can be a friend of the show by leaving a review on the Good Pods app, podchaser.com, or any major podcast player. Every review helps the show reach more listeners. If you're ready to take your deal-making to the next level by becoming a master negotiator, head over to Amazon or Audible and grab a copy of my best-selling book, Authentic Negotiating. Then connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know your thoughts. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.